This is Jim Wallace for the Soul of the Nation. Midterm elections, many feelings afterward, some of a deep sense of relief. (sighs) Take a breath. People feeling relieved by some of the results. Also, there's some wisdom we should gain from these results. There are, first of all, some reasons for people of faith and conscience and people for the common good to be grateful and encouraged, reminders also of what we're up against. But let's look at the things to be grateful for first. Amendment 4 to the Florida Constitution was approved by well over 60% of the voters. Now, that's the amendment to restore voting rights to literally 1.4 million people in Florida formerly convicted of felonies who have completed their debt to society but couldn't vote. We're disenfranchised. Imagine how the Florida elections would have turned out in recent years if all of those felons who have done everything they're supposed to do were still thought to be citizens and could vote. Well, that amendment passed with support of people on both sides of the aisle, and many people of faith were involved. And I'm very grateful because this was, this was one of the most insidious uh, Jim Crow-era policies to disenfranchise people of color. And now, that lost. Michigan and Nevada used ballot initiatives to adopt automatic voter registration. Here's what automatic voter registration would mean in my home state of Michigan. If you apply for a driver's license or any kind of state ID, you are automatically registered to vote in your state. Wouldn't that be an amazing and wonderful thing? Fourteen states now have made these moves uh, since 2015 toward automatic voter registration. And more people, more able to vote quickly and easily, this is a good thing. Medicaid was expanded by ballot measure in Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, and will likely soon be also in Maine, as the incoming governor has pledged to do so. Kansas could even follow up. This means 500,000 people will gain access to affordable health care. How can you not be excited about that? The minimum wage was raised by ballot measure in Missouri and Arkansas. People will be paid more for their hard work every day. And three states, Michigan, Missouri, and Colorado, reformed their redistricting laws and made them nonpartisan to prevent partisan gerrymandering, a way to, in fact, racialize our voting in this country. And here's a big one. Women from both political parties won more than 100 House seats, with several races still counting votes. This is a new high for women in the Congress. And those new Congresswomen now include the first two Muslim Congresswomen, the first black Congresswomen to represent Massachusetts and Connecticut, the first two Native American Congresswomen ever, and Iowa's first ever Congresswoman. This is a big deal. And many of those new members of Congress, who are women of color, won in districts where there was more than 80% white people voting. This is extraordinary. In those majority white districts 
women of color, stood and ran and spoke and won people over and won their elections from incumbents. So my personal favorite election result was Minnesota elected its first Native American lieutenant governor. Peggy Flanagan, well, she's like a daughter to me. I'm her adopted father, and she is extraordinary. And she won over hearts and minds in Minnesota, and now she's the highest elected Native American person ever in Minnesota history because she ran on one Minnesota for all of us, and people loved it. And I love Peggy, and she won. And in the middle of all this, several African-American candidates were elected to Congress for the first time in majority white, wealthy, suburban districts. So my favorites are Laura Underwood, who was a nurse in Naperville, Illinois, and her congressperson voted against the Affordable Care Act. As a nurse who herself had a pre-existing condition, she knew what a problem that was. So she decided to run, (laughs) and she won on health care for all of us. She's now, I think, the youngest African-American congressperson. Colin Alfred in Texas, Antonio Delgado in upstate New York, and he was attacked for being a big city rapper. (laughs) He also was a Rhodes Scholar. They didn't bother to mention that. And he won. And maybe the one that is most uh, striking is how Lucy McBath was the mother of Vernon Davis. You remember that young man who was shot in a car at a gas station with his friends because their music was too loud with this white guy who just shot and killed him. His mom is now a member of Congress. She came to the Sojourner's Summit the last couple of years. She's an amazing woman, and she's a mother who had a child killed by gun violence, and now she is a spokesperson as a member of Congress. That, to me, is very heartening indeed. Several local sheriffs lost their elections because of their close relationship to ICE and their role in facilitating aggressive crackdowns on undocumented immigrants under the Trump administration. They lost. Now, zooming out to the broadest level of the consequences of this election is this. The change in the power in the House of Representatives will change Washington with the end of one-party control of the federal government. This is a desperately needed check on Donald Trump's power after two chaotic and frightening years when he faced virtually no limits or checks whatsoever. This makes now a vital check and balance to the growing concerns of this president's executive power that both, let me point out, both Democrats and some Republicans called for this. Prominent conservative columnists Mike Gerson and Ross Douthat each said Wednesday after the election, in much the same language they said before the election, that this new House will provide a much-needed check on the president and his administration that was desperately needed. That's good news. And both Republicans and Democrats believe it is. This isn't just partisan. This is about democracy, about checks and balances, about 
about having fairness, about the common good. And when people on both sides of the aisle say, we need a check here, I'm glad we got a check here. But despite these many good things to be thankful for after the Tuesday results, they also clarified what people of faith and conscience are up against still. And it's very daunting. In the closing days of this campaign, as we and many others sounded the alarm, Donald Trump used open, unadulterated, and blatant racism as his closing strategy in conservative states. Democrats are inviting caravan after caravan. If you want more caravans, if you want more crime, vote Democrat tomorrow. And they want totally open borders, which means crime will pour into our country. This was a political strategy of racialized fear and anger and even hatred that resulted in violence. And this strategy was rewarded by his party gaining seats in the Senate and likely electing allies in governorships. In Florida and Georgia, which are still counting, we had brilliant efforts by two impressive, inspiring African-American candidates, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams, who did remarkably well in southern states. And now there are recounts going on. I heard about these retirees in Florida who were in their retirement homes being interviewed by the press. And these old folks were terribly afraid of, as they said, the invasion of an immigrant caravan that would bring leprosy, smallpox, and violent criminals into America. These, I don't think, are bad folks, but they got scared by Donald Trump. So he appealed to those fears. And his appeal uh, worked in some states and some places. But it also sparked a deep response from young people, young voters, and minority voters who, who stood up and, and stepped out and voted like never before in a midterm election. We also need to be clear that the tactics of voter suppression were on display in this campaign and may have impacted a number of races, especially in Georgia and North Dakota, where uh, addresses were required of Native Americans to vote for the first time when Native people often don't have street addresses. And those who made this new rule knew that. Requiring street addresses for Native people is a direct effort, deliberate, direct, knowledgeable, to repress their votes. So, moving forward, people of faith and conscience must make it clear that we'll be actively involved in protecting the votes of all our citizens. You've heard me speak before on this uh, podcast of lawyers and callers. Well, indeed, many callers, many clergy went to polls across the nation, stood alongside lawyers to protect the rights of those whose votes were being, in fact, uh, suppressed. And it caused a tremendous response 
Uh, we had pastors' prayer breakfasts. We had meetings with secretaries of state. Uh, we had great voter turnout in lots of places. I was at Ebenezer Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which was uh, Dr. King's home church, and a huge prayer rally calling for prayer the night before the election filled the place on a Monday night. And we had pastors going to polls all over the state of Georgia and around the country. As painful new data shows, it is white evangelicals, white evangelicals, who are the demographic group in this country now most opposed to an increasingly diverse multiracial future ahead for America. This is a damning indictment of white evangelicals and to a lesser extent, white mainline Protestants and even white Catholics. This survey comes from the 2018 American Values Survey by PRRI, which says this, that the U.S. becoming a majority of minorities in racial diversity by 2045 is a negative thing. Two-thirds of all Americans say this is a good thing. Also, white evangelicals are the only religious group with a majority, 51%, favoring a law preventing refugees from entering the country. Only 37% of the country supports such a law. These are people who say they believe the Bible, which says that welcoming refugees and immigrants is a test of faith. And Jesus says, how you welcome the stranger is how you welcome me. That means white evangelicals have wandered dangerously far from the gospel of Jesus, and their leaders have failed to model and teach true discipleship. So I want to say, after this election, the calling out of the use of white nationalism by this president has now become a test of faith for those white evangelical leaders in this country who still support, advise, and identify with Donald Trump. We have a long road ahead of us, and the integrity of faith is now clearly at stake. The coming change in power in Washington, in the Congress, is the reason why Donald Trump is clearly now so afraid. The first day after the elections, President Trump forced the resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Instead of the normal procedure of the current Deputy Attorney General becoming the acting Attorney General until a new appointee is confirmed by the Senate, Donald Trump chose Matt Whitaker, a Trump loyalist who has harshly criticized the Mueller investigation in the past. The new acting attorney general has called Robert Mueller's investigation a hoax and a witch hunt, repeating the words of President Trump. The truth is there was no collusion with the Russians in the Trump campaign. This means that the current deputy attorney general, Rob Rosenstein, who was overseeing Mueller's investigation, has now been set aside. And Whitaker's installation may have already begun to effectively undermine and even to ultimately end the investigation into Donald Trump. In response to this announcement, 
one of the most bridge-building and bipartisan senators on Capitol Hill, Chris Coons from Delaware, also a committed Christian. Chris is not one to sound alarms very often. He is not uh, strident or militant, but here's what he said. Matt Whitaker strikes me as a clear and present danger to the independence of the special counsel, given things he has said a year ago when he was a CNN commentator uh, and given some of his uh, unusual legal theories. Uh, I do think Matthew Whitaker, the acting AG, should recuse himself given his past statements. Chris Coons tweeted this. If there is any indication that the president has fired the attorney general, and named Mr. Whitaker as acting attorney general to influence or end special counselor Robert Mueller's investigation, that would make today's action an historic attack on the rule of law. That is a red line which President Trump has been warned not to cross by Republicans and Democrats for months. If that is in fact true, what Senator Kuhn says, we will see how elected officials on the Democrat and Republican side respond if this really is an attempt during even a lame duck session before a new Congress takes office in January to undermine and even end the Mueller investigation. That we cannot allow to happen because democracy depends on all of us being accountable to the rule of law. If during this lame duck session, as they call it, before the new Congress takes office in January, If the president uses this new appointment to virtually end Robert Mueller's special investigation, we are in serious trouble, and democracy is too. So in the days following the election, Donald Trump made what seems to me like a fresh declaration of political war against his opponents, including an incredible attack on the press at his first press conference in months, even taking away the press credentials of the CNN reporter in the room who dared to ask him a tough question. The immediate firing of Jeff Sessions the day after the election by Donald Trump could become the beginning of a constitutional crisis in America. So let us watch. Let us pray. Let us be ready to act to protect democracy in this country. This is Jim Wallace for the soul of the nation. God bless you.